2: At LuckyLandSlots.com,
1: available to players in the U.S. excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18+ plus. Turns and conditions apply. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling
2: the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to luckylandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino style games for free. Get lucky today at luckylandslots.com.
1: Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington, and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group, void prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. The presenting sponsor of today's podcast is Fifth Element CBD. Fifth Element is ultra high milligram CBD focused on relief and recovery after a workout. They are specially designed for people with an active lifestyle, from weekend warriors to professional athletes to bucket list gym enthusiasts. Fifth Element, a.k.a. 5E, is full-spectrum high milligram hemp to help you whenever, wherever you need it, whether it's after the gym or after work. Get yours today to feel better tomorrow by visiting 5ehemp.com and use the promo code MONSTER for 50% off. Yes, you heard that right, 50% off, half off, That's 5ehemp.com and use the code MONSTER. Go to 5ehemp and get 50% off. That's the number 5, the letter E, hemp.com.
0: You're listening to the Red Sea Podcast, part of the Over the Monster Network.
1: Red Sox fans have long to hear. The Boston Red Sox are world champions.
0: Hosted by Jake Devereaux. It's gone. It's in the bullpen. This game is tied. This game is tied. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. And featuring Keaton Derosier.
2: It's a grand slam. I'm telling you.
3: Welcome back to episode 212 of the Red Seat Podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux, and today I am joined by a special guest to the show. Instead of uh, Keaton DeRocher, we are joined by Ian Kundal. I should say I am joined by Ian Kundal, the scouting director at socksprospects.com Ian, what's up, my man?
0: What's going on, Jake? It's, uh, it's good to be back on and uh, talking a little baseball now that things have gotten going again.
3: Yeah, it's definitely very exciting to be talking some baseball, and um, we we have to give you some props here, though. You are now officially our most frequent show guest, surpassing Jen McCaffrey.
0: Oh, I'm honored. That oh, is the Athletic. A, yeah, that is a that's impressive. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, Jen is Jen's great, but uh, I'm proud to have the title now, and uh, <laughs> we'll see how long it lasts, though. <laughs> yeah yeah
3: we're gonna have to get some sort of a belt or something like that for for the uh most frequent guests. how about a laundry
0: have. cart or a shopping cart do I have that one? that's it exactly but i think that's like the new th- it thing in the streets these days at least that's what the red Sox have taught me
3: it is it is um although i gotta be honest with
0: you every time i see that thing i'm freaked out somebody's gonna get like a back injury no, see, I was more worried like it's going to run over someone's foot or something. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, something's going to happen with that cart at some point this season. So I, I'm just hoping it, it's none of the none of the big names that get injured. So, um, all of you out there should be following Ian's work if you haven't uh, checked out SoxProspects.com. You probably haven't been listening to my show because we reference it all oh, all the time. It's an invaluable resource. Um, you can find Chris Hatfield and Ian's work, as, as well as the others that work hard at SoxProspects.com uh, over there, and give Ian a follow on Twitter, too. He's a absolutely a, essential follow if you cover the Red Sox uh, minor leagues at all and you're interested in that, so you can find him at, at Ian Cundle, IanCundall, I-A-N-C-U-N-D-A-L-L. All right, Ian, let's get right to it. So today we're going to be focusing on... Um, how the system can help out the Major League Club this year. Uh, obviously, the Major League Club is looking quite a bit better than we expected, I think is fair to say. Uh, we weren't expecting, you know, Close to a hundred game win pace at this point. Um, that is, is, great news for for me. Uh, especially, you know, the last couple of years covering the team has been pretty difficult. But um, you know, this year's product's a lot more enjoyable. Uh, very watchable <laughs> club.
0: Um, let's start off there, I guess. Are, are you surprised by the early performance of this squad? Um, I don't think so. Actually, I, I think that kind of they've settled into what I expected. Um, Obviously, that first series in Baltimore was way worse than you could have imagined, I think. And then that neck then immediately followed by that huge winning streak was obviously better. It was kind of the high end of what you could. And I think they've kind of settled in where they are, which is I think they're a team that's going to win more games than they lose this year, and they're going to be in contention. And, you know, Bat try get like 85 to somewhere in the 85 to 95 win range. And whether that says a wild card or in contention for the division is to be seen. But um, I think that, yeah, they've been a lot of fun to watch. The offense is really good. I kind of, I, I kind of expected that, but it, it's, it's interesting to me how they're going about it because they have some guys really struggling yet. The offense is still clicking along. Um, and then the pitching is kind of what I expected also with that, you know, you have a couple reliable starters, you have a couple reliable relievers, and then you have a bunch of question marks. And I think that's kind of the area where High and Bloom is going to be looking to improve as the season goes along.
3: Yeah, it's really interesting, and and I think um, you know if you do listen to the Sox Prospects podcast. One of the things that you guys were always, I think it's fair to say, critical of Dave Dombrowski with was the lack of depth in the minor league system. And it's mm-hmm. clearly been an area of focus for Heim Bloom. And I think what we're seeing here is just um, how that plays out on the field and what depth looks like and what it can actually do for a club, um, you know, in terms of just impacting the actual everyday product that we actually see in Boston that the depth has been the difference, I think this year and um, in a lot of ways so far.
0: Yeah, I agree. And, and I think that's the the thing that and I, it, I know it's cliche to say, but it's kind of the raise way is, you know, the 40th spot on the 40 man roster is just as important as the first. And that's something that under the previous regime, the Red Sox just didn't really care about. You know, if, if you followed, they weren't turning over the back end of the roster. They kind of just were mailing in those last few spots and, you know, they, it, there was a lot of dead weight um, being carried. And what Haim Bloom has done is he's trying to maximize every one of those 40 spots. And, mm. you know, that's why you're getting guys. You have guys like, you know, Phillips Valdez was picked off waivers. Garrett Whitlock was uh, picked in the rule five draft. Austin Bryce is on the team. But then you got like Christian Arroyo as a waiver claim and he's turned into, he's probably their Our starting second baseman now, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's things like that. Th- those little moves can have just as big an impact as the big moves. And, that's kind of what the Red Sox this year is about is figuring out which of those little moves and which of those, you know, under the radar acquisitions are long term pieces and which ones aren't. And then this offseason, I think, is when we see them start supplementing again with those big moves.
3: So let's, let's chat a little bit about uh, Garrett Whitlock here. So I know that he is somebody who's going to likely be a mover for you guys uh, at Sox Prospects in your next upcoming May rankings, mm-hmm. um, maybe even cracking the top 10. No, uh, he'll he be in the top 10. Uh, good. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I think he's well-deserving of it at this point. Um for, for the people out there who, who didn't follow his career, uh, you know, when he was with the Yankees before he ended up, you know, going under the knife and then coming back, um, what has happened to his stuff? How is it different than uh, before when he was a prospect with the Yankees system?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And actually, it, it's an interesting test case because when, when they uh, drafted Whitlock, I had actually seen him with the Yankees before, which I didn't realize at the time, but um, I had seen him once and I talked to a three four scouts who had seen him in 2019 also so we had we were pretty confident in our report of him and that's why we ranked him in the 30s because we usually hedge lower on guys we haven't seen um i like to see guys in person before i'm comfortable you know really shoving them up the rankings and so since we hadn't seen him you know the reports were pretty tepid you know you're looking at a guy who's six five which great frame which you love to see but fastballs you know low 90s couple of fringy to average secondary pitches like average slider fringy changeup. you know throw strikes doesn't miss a ton of bats you know maybe we heard you know maybe like an emergency swingman type you know something like that it's not the sexiest profile mm-hmm. and that's kind of why we had him where we did I think he was like 31 or 32 still a good you know good ranking but you know not a top 20 top 10 guy. And um, what happened is he came back from Tommy John. And the first thing is his fastball velocity is ticked up. Um, You know, now he's throwing like a sinker in the 94, 95, 96 mile per hour range, which is a big difference from throwing it in, you know, 91, 92. Um, So you're getting a full grade on the fastball at least. And then the biggest development is with his secondary pitches is his changeup has become his best secondary pitch. And I've talked to scouts who've seen the Red Sox this year um, turning in their major league reports to put like a 60 and a 65 on the changeup. Oh my goodness! And that was a pitch that talking to scouts who saw him in 2019 um, when he played with Trenton were like, it's a 35, 40, 45 at best. You know, so he's gained like two grades on his changeup in and that's just not something you can ever predict you know what i mean like that's just one of those things where he i guess matt andreese taught him a grip that worked and you know (laughs) it it, he had a lot of he checked a lot of boxes that you really like with his size um they've kind of tweaked his delivery a little bit and he gets his extension is among like the top i think it's like top five percent of all of baseball in terms of extension to home plate so his fastball gets in really quick Mm. and when you're throwing like a 94 95 mile per hour power sinker with elite extension and then you can drop in a plus changeup and an average slider also even though he hasn't really been throwing a slider at all out of the bullpen which isn't a surprise but yeah i mean that's just a completely different picture than kind of the report you get you know coming out of trenton in 2019 and that's why he's shooting up the rankings and now it's kind of created this dilemma it's he's probably their second best reliever that was what i I was talking to a, a scout who had them recently and he turned him in him in as their second best reliever right now but they pretty clearly have a very strict schedule of how they're pitching him yeah and it's kind of created this conundrum of like what do you do because i think long term he could be a starter and obviously that's more valuable than a reliever but with the way the team is constructed this year they really need him in the bullpen and they need him to be pitching more than he it kind of is right now and so i'm very interested to see what they end up doing with him because i almost think it's kind of similar to the situation the white Sox are currently in with michael kopech Mm-hmm. where he's coming off, obviously, he's missed the last two years for various reasons, Tommy John being one of them, and then some personal stuff. And his stuff is electric. I mean, Kovac's stuff is insane, and obviously Red Sox fans know that Um, back when he was with the team. And they're kind of just hedging him into the rotation for a few starts here and there. Then they're putting him in the bullpen. But he's going, you know, five innings in the start, but then he'll go two in relief. And mm-hmm. I do wonder if at some point the Red Sox just decide maybe we just need to start – you know extending him out and get him some starts this season but or they need to just commit to the bullpen I'm not sure this kind of like what they're doing now where he throws every five or six days for three innings is that is the ideal use for him but at the end of the day the most important thing is keeping him healthy and if this is what they need to do to do that I guess I'd support that but it's just I'm interested to see kind of how his role evolves over the season
3: yeah, it's going to be interesting, too, and, and especially if they can, you know, stay in contention all year long and be battling for a playoff spot, you know, his his innings are going to become exponentially more important as well, and how they use those innings are going to become more important. So, yeah, I agree. It's it's really interesting. It's it's a great development. Uh, feels extra sweet to steal a guy like that from the
0: Yankees as well. <laughs> um, yeah, for $100,000. That's... Yeah, that's it's a heck of a find by the Red Sox scouting department. I think uh, I want to say it was Alex Spear or someone had a really good story on it recently discussing the scout or he interviewed the scout who uh, recommended him several years back and everything. And, yeah, it's just a really good job by Boston. Um, and this, again, kind of taking advantage of they would not have been picking fourth if they didn't weren't terrible last year. So, you know, having that fourth pick in the rule five draft really paid off there.
3: Now, is, uh, is Whitlock's slider more than just a show-me pitch? Is that something that can actually work effectively? If, if he were to be stretched out as a starter and be going like five or six innings, is, is that a pitch that he can work in effectively, do you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, I talked to several scouts who saw him during spring training, and they threw like 45-50 on it. And, you know, if he's a plus fastball, plus changeup average slider guy, that's that can easily work as a third pitch.
3: Yeah. It sounds like a number three to me. Is that kind of what you're thinking?
0: Um, yeah. I, I think the hard thing with him is just the health, you know, because mm-hmm. he, he's never thrown more than, I want to say, it's like 80 innings in his pro career. Mm-hmm. And uh, – no, sorry. Excuse me. It was 100, 110. Sorry. Okay. So he's thrown over 100 innings, but he just because he's coming off Tommy John, it's hard kind of to – be comfortable putting like a number three. This stuff is definitely that of a mid-rotation guy though, for sure. Yeah.
3: So it's a great find. So very interesting piece there. All right. So we're going to start talking about some of the Red Sox top prospects who have not yet made an impact at the major league level. And the first guy I want to talk about is Jaron Duran. He's a 24-year-old lefty bat, um, plays some center field, also plays some corner outfield, uh, my first question to you about Duran
0: is what does he need to work at to be major league ready? Um, well, yeah, I, I, I actually was able to see Duran last week in person, which was fun. Um, I got out to Worcester to check out the new park and uh, saw a couple of scrimmages of the alternate site team versus the Mets alternate site team. And I, I gave, it got a pretty good look at Duran. You know, I saw him in like 10 at-bats over the couple games. But um, it kind of showed there's there's two main areas for me that he needs to really work on. And the first one is kind of the one I think the media has talked about the most is his defense. Um, he's not a great center fielder. And mm. I do not think the Red Sox would be comfortable putting him in center field at the major league level right now. And I think the recent news that came out today has kind of emphasizes that. Um, he just his, He's not a natural center fielder. And it, it's understandable. He's been playing the position for like a year and a half. But – he just doesn't get good reads off the bat out there and his instincts are just, they're not great. And um, it's something that I think it could improve over time. And he gets away with it somewhat because of his speed. And I, I noticed that when I was watching him uh, in the games last week, like he would just, there'd be a ball to center field. And even if he catch it, you still can see, you know, he'd have that false step back on a ball. He's coming in or, you know, he'd take two steps in and then have to go back. And it's just little things like that, that, they don't, nec- they don't show up in the box and they might not necessarily be thought about at the minor league level, but in a major league game, you know, that's the difference between an out and, you know, a double for sure. example. Yeah. So, I think the defense is the number one thing, and I think that's why I would not be surprised that if he did come up, it was in a corner outfield spot because there's less pressure in left field. His arm isn't that great either. It's, you know, like a fringy 40-45 arm. Mm-hmm. And in left field, especially at Fenway, you can really hide that. The downside is, though, with his athleticism, it's kind of a waste. Right. So it's it's a trade-off, you know do you want someone who's a 70 runner who I've seen him go get it and, you know, he can make up for those, those misreads or that, that bad first step because of his speed. That's kind of, you know, that's not as valuable in left field. So that's the one downside of him being in the corner. But I think if they, they reach the point and I don't think we're there yet, but if they reach the point where they decide that the second part, which is, I'm going to talk about his bat is ready. Then that would be the place to do. It would be in left field. Um, Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I just want to
3: follow up on that defense thing. Is is this the type of thing that could be fixed just with reps and or, you know, being here up in Boston and picking the brain of Alex Verdugo, a guy who's just, you know, very solid all over the field? Is that the type of thing that he can work on with coaches and with his fellow players and, and get better at? Or is it something that you feel like is just more innate and he just doesn't have a knack for the reads?
0: Um, I mean, it's hard to say because it, it's hard just because he hasn't played outfield for that long, right? You know, if, if he was someone who had played outfield all through coming up in college and he still was doing this, then I would say, yeah, the, at this point, it's kind of a lot, you know, they're not going to be able to really make much of a difference there, but because he's new to the position, I would hope. And I, I think the Red Sox believe that, that, that can improve that area of his game can improve, mm-hmm. but it's just that, you know, you have that trade off of is that development defensively? At the expense of you know him being up helping your major league team, worth it. And I think that's kind of the 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 tipping point is we're going to have to see at some point this season. Gotcha, gotcha. All
3: right. Well, so on the flip side, what is he really good at um, that you know makes him so such an attractive option, especially with guys like Franchy Cordero and Hunter Renfro struggling at the plate?
0: Yeah. Um, and this actually, he. I actually had one more thing he does need to work on that I kind of, we can play in with this, but it's, I think that the look that they think he can be an offensive upgrade, and I I think long-term he could be an offensive upgrade on those guys. You know, with his new, um, he made some swing changes back before last season, and there were questions about how they would take, and the number one thing is the power that he's now tapping into um, is very legit. You know, I saw him hit two home runs over the weekend. Uh, They were just just absolute tanks. I think one was like four twenty, four fifteen. I think um, one to center field, one to right center. He he really can drive the ball now, and that's kind of the product of ha- he's lowered his hands a little bit. It's more vertical and uh, kind of toned down, simplified his mechanics. And then he's got a a lot stronger. You know, he's still really athletic, but he's also jacked. Um, He's got a really good frame. He's like 6'2", probably 210, 215 now. And it's all muscle. Like, this guy just is a weight room warrior. And uh, it plays. You know, he can really drive the ball now. And with that, though, is kind of my second question mark in the area, I think, that he needs to work on. And that's the swing and miss. Mm -hmm. Um, He was a pretty good contact guy uh, back before, you know, he was like a 20% strikeout rate or so. And um, since he's kind of changed his, his stuff around, he's just struck out a lot in the looks I've seen. Um, that was spring training last year in the Puerto Rican League, and, or sorry, Puerto Rican League last year, spring training this year. And then again, in the couple of games I saw this year and the ATS games I've been watching on the awesome Worcester feed, mm-hmm. um, there's still a lot of swing and miss in this game. And I do think that was kind of the trade off. You know, we, we hear about it a lot. You know, you can be like a plus hitter with average power. Or would you rather be an average hitter with plus power? Right. You know, there's some sort of trade off when you make those swing changes. And so I, I expected the swing and miss to increase some. It's just it's been pretty noticeable. And I'm just want to see what it looks like, because I'm kind of afraid that just more advanced pitchers are going to take advantage of that. And I think that's the one concern I have is that he'll get up to the major league level and pitchers will quickly figure out his areas of his swing that are kind of he can't really make that good contact yet and that's for me is up in the zone and then breaking balls down Mm -hmm. and if he just starts getting hammering with those what happens now the good news is the flip side is he's shown the ability to make adjustments he's done it at every level um you know he he's a really smart guy he really thinks about the game you know in double he went up to double a after dominating high a in 2019 really struggled, and he spent the entire offseason retooling his swing in order to succeed at that level. You know, that's the kind of stuff you'd really like to see out of a player. Yeah. So I have confidence that he would be able to adjust. I'm just – it might take some time. Yeah. And that's, you know, when you're a team trying to win, do you have that time to let a guy kind of figure it out in the majors or is it better for him to develop, you know, another couple of months in the minors and then come up? That's kind of the question I think the Red Sox are kind of wrestling with right now.
3: Yeah, the Red Sox are in an interesting position with him right now because, it, you know, he has looked so good at all these different places and the swing change has looked great. Um, and you're you're right. I mean, from what I've seen, the dude is absolutely yoked and mm-hmm. you know, he's got wheels. He gives you a thread on the base paths that is really interesting as well. Um, but, you know, we do have the, the known power in Hunter Renfro, the known defense in Hunter Renfro. Um, Franchi Cordero, frankly, aside from the weird positioning thing, uh, has looked pretty good in left field as well and has graded out positively there. Um, so those guys are, are guys that he has to contend with. And then, you know, Danny Santana is also looming. So, I mean, what is, what is his path to Boston this year with all of those guys sort of in the mix, uh, in that outfield?
0: Yeah, I, I think that it would be as the left fielder. Um, you know, you put pretty. It's been pretty interesting to me. I thought uh, Enrique Hernandez was going to play mostly second base. He's pretty much their everyday center fielder, and so it would be with Verdugo and right Hernandez at center, and then Duran and left. And that would mean, you know, you put Renfro on the bench as a platoon bat, uh, bat kind of giving Durant, spelling Duran against tough lefties, or maybe you move, you know, Verdugo to center put. Um, uh, Renfro and Wright and then move Hernandez the second you know they have a lot of flexibility which I really like positionally um, and so that the path would be in the Franchi Cordero spot but as you said it's they they do like Cordero and he's had his struggles of late Um, he's not driving the ball at all right now he's swinging miss stri- striking out way too much but there's still a lot of talent there, and I think they do want to give him a, a good look. And they have been playing like Marvin Gonzalez out there, and they have Danny Santana. So that's kind of the thing is they have so much positional flexibility that it kind of puts him behind a lot of guys. And that's yeah. – if you're going to call him up, you, in my opinion, you, you do it because you're calling him up for good unless he really struggles obviously. But you, know, you you're know, the plan is you're calling him up for good, and I think that they want to give Cordero You know, – they're going to give him I would say at least – another couple of weeks to figure it out and then yeah the quickest path though would be Cordero continues to struggle for a couple more weeks and Danny Santana gets up and just doesn't have it you know he's not back from his injury which I mean we don't know he was terrible last year but that seemed to be because of the injury you know if he just doesn't have what he showed in what was it 2019 was this really good year I think uh yeah um, then that's the path but I just think there's a lot of people ahead of him right now that I think you give at least a cursory chance to or give a longer look to before you turn to Duran all right so I'm gonna ask you to prognosticate a little bit he is up by what date uh I would say like June 1 oh wow okay I would say like June I was say I was debating between like June 1st and June and June 15th I think probably June 15th is safer but I could see you know, somewhere in that June range. And, and the thing that obviously we can't account for that could accelerate is this if there's injuries. right? You know, if, if Verdugo goes down, if Hernandez goes down, if something happens to one of those guys, then all bets are off. But I would say I, I think you're looking at early summer right now.
3: All right. All right. I like the idea of being able to follow
0: him for most of the summer. That's going to be very attractive. I do think also, though, there's something to wanting to get him at least a couple of weeks in Worcester to start the season. Because obviously that season starts in, I think, May 4th. I think it's in like, you know, 10 days or whatever, less than that, like seven days, eight days. Mm -hmm. And I do think that he, it would be good for him to, because he's obviously been stuck at the ATS playing, you know, he's played, what, five games and then he has two more. So he's played seven games against, you know, not his own team in the last month. I think they want, I would want to see him get, you know, a two, three month long, you know, of consistent at bats and, playing six, seven days a week. Um, because right now, yeah, he's just not been having that competitive environment. And, you know, you, there's only so much you can do in a simulated game or in a scrimmage to get, you know, that competitive juices flowing and kind of, you know, you can't really replicate what it is like to face major league pitching in a competitive atmosphere at that level. So I think he does need to get some competition against other teams and games that counts first.
3: Yeah, I mean, especially because last time I saw him play affiliated ball was in Portland and saw him struggle. So I think that it is kind of important for him to have success against you know pitchers in the high minors before he does get
0: that exactly. taste of
3: of major leagues. So. Exactly,
0: because like I, I I I'm I'm sure there's people you know um, listeners, readers who are calling for him to be called up already. Maybe even writers, but yeah, we're talking about a guy who has had you know in the double a he had probably what 80 games in double a and that's it and he struggled he hit like 250 yeah you know that's a super aggressive if he just never plays in triple a and they just promote him the majors and that's why I, i just don't think we see it imminently but i do think he could play his way there like if he comes out in the first month that is just crushing the What I don't know what the AAA league is called now, honestly. Whatever the AAA league is called, Um, (laughs) Eastern League, I think, or the Eastern International League, or whatever. I don't know, whatever it's called. But if if he just crushes that for a month, then maybe you know you 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 accelerate it. But I think they'll want to see him kind of get some games under his belt.
3: Yeah. The other wrinkle there is he's going to be playing the same six teams or five teams uh, in that division as well, uh, while they're with Worcester too, because of the way the schedule is shaking out this year. So. You know, he's going to spend a lot of time on buses to New York. That's for sure. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, I think he's on a bus to New York right now because they play, I think, tomorrow against the Mets team.
3: There we go. All right. So uh, let's talk about uh, second baseman slash shortstop. uh, Jeter Downs, 22-year-old right-handed bat. um, One of the prizes in the Mookie Betts trade along with Alex Verdugo. Um, His path to the majors is a little less clear. What does he need to be working on
0: right now to be major league ready? What are some of the gaps in his game at this point? Um, I think there's a couple. It's uh, and a lot of it is just being consistent every day. Um, I I think the Red Sox even talked about it last year is, you know, he'd have some good days. He'd have some bad days. And he's just got to come in day in and day out and just consistently perform. Um, yeah, with Downs, you know, he's someone who he doesn't really have a standout tool, but he also doesn't really have a huge hole in his game. It's a bunch of, you know, 50s and 55s or around that. And so I, I think that more, as I said, it's just the consistency and it's just getting reps. You know, he's another guy who in his career, I believe he's played like 12 double A games. So, you know, he's not someone I don't think you're going to he's in the, you know, the frame to be called up anytime soon because he's just he's young, you know, he's still 22. He's not had a lot of high minors experience and he needs those consistent reps both in the field and at the plate um, in order to continue to develop his game and, you know, refine his approach uh, at the plate and then also kind of improve in his consistency in the field and show whether or not, you know, he's someone who you think can be a shortstop or more is probably a second baseman, Mm -hmm. which I I would lean more now, but I think he could probably, you know, fake it at shortstop. But um, I think that, you know, his path is second base, But I don't think it's something we see this year, especially because they do have guys ahead of him in the minors. You know, guys like Michael Chavis is in the minors and he's playing some first and some second. And Jonathan Arouse is in the minors also. And he obviously got some MLB time last year and he's played a lot of infield. So I just think that he's someone they want to give, you know, consistent everyday at bats in the minors. And unless he just absolutely destroys the baseball, I just I'm not sure we see him at any point this year.
3: Yeah, it seems like a position where at the major league level, they just have so much redundancy, especially with Christian Arroyo kind of uh, coming up and and looking as good as he's looked as well. Mm -hmm. Um, With with all those 50s, 55s across the board, if you had to pick one thing that is sort of the standout thing with him, is, is there anything there or is it just that that collection of 50s, 55s makes him... Just an overall very solid potential major leaguer.
0: Um, I, I think he can hit. I, I think that, you know, he's he's got really good back control. I like his swing, he's got bat speed. I do think it's that the hit tool is kind of the standout. I think the power is kinda, you know, average ish and a lot of it I mean he's not the biggest guy, he's probably five ten, five eleven. The speed is the same and defensively it's not a standout defense. So I I would say probably the hit tool. Okay. Which That's is not the worst thing. You know, it's nice to have a good hit tool. So
3: for Xander Bogarts haters, which it's really hard for me to believe that there are some Is that out a thing? there. Uh, you know what? You'd be surprised. We get all all shapes and sizes uh, nice. at over the monster, but yeah, there are some people. I would I would say that are uh, critical of the way that Xander Bogarts grades out defensively uh, at shortstop. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm one of these people who thinks that Xander Bogarts makes pretty much all of the standard plays uh, that a shortstop is supposed to make. He doesn't usually make the spectacular ones, but I'm totally fine with that with the A++ bat that he has over there.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's arguably the best-hitting shortstop in the American League.
3: Yeah, I totally agree with you. I'm like president of the Xander Bogarts fan club. Um, But there are some people who are a little bit critical of his defense and have pointed to Jeter Downs as a potential – replacement at shortstop, is there any potential that Jeter Downs could push Xander off of the position or is that just as no. foolish as it sounds? Yeah.
0: I don't see that. You know, the only way it would be if Downs was a standout defender and I would say best case, he's like a 50 defender at shortstop and even scouts I've talked to on it are very split on whether he can even stick there long term. So I, I think he profiles better at second base and I don't know why you would want to disrupt what Bogarts is doing. Like, I know his defense this year, especially, I, I think it grades out really poorly on stat cast, I want to say. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like when he's hitting like he is, you just kind of let it go. You don't want to throw off that mojo. And I, I know he's he's been, you know, he's had his struggles, but I'm Alex Rodriguez and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal each week. You're hear us in conversation with business icons. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, I mean, and the other issue is if he's moving somewhere, it's probably to third base. It's not going to be to second base, which creates a whole new set of issues. So yep. I just don't don't see what the point of disrupting what he's doing there. And you better believe his agent. They, they got to be careful there because he has an opt out and he's mm-hmm. probably going to opt out. So they're going to have to give him a new deal. I do not think moving him off shortstop is a great idea when he's got Scott Boris as his agent.
3: Yeah, I want him to be the shortstop for the Red Sox for the next 10 years, Um, and I don't want anything to mess with that. So, Yeah, uh, I'm with you there. So it sounds like Jeter Downs is probably not a real option for this team here in 2021. Let's go a little bit further down to, in my opinion, the most exciting prospect in the Red Sox system, Tristan Casas, 21-year-old lefty bat, um, plays first base, he's played just a tiny bit of third base, which is kind of laughable considering he's 6'5", 250. Um, but Costas is just, he's an incredible talent. I mean, let, let's start with not what he needs to work on, but why should we be
0: getting so excited about him at this point? What what are his biggest skills? I, I think you know, we've know we kind of talked about with these last couple of guys that there's a bunch of like, average-ish tools. Costas has loud tools. You know, We're talking about a guy who you could really go like plus hit 70 power on like it's a he's a legit and it's probably more like plus plus but it it could be a trade-off situation maybe he goes 50 70 you know with that but his raw power is insane you know he's massive as you said and he just hits bombs you know he can really drive the ball um he's but it's at the same time while he really can drive the ball he also has a really good approach and an idea of what he's doing at the plate you know he, he really knows the strike zone. He, he'll he expand it on occasion, but he doesn't really chase as much as, you know, you would expect from a power hitter with his size. He makes a decent amount of contact, and he, you know, he really has a good approach up there. You know, he, he has a two-strike approach. He really chokes up on the bat with two strikes, just looking to make con- contact. He really thinks about and, you know, wants to be successful at his craft at the plate. He um, wants to be Joey Votto. Um, <laughs> I think more more he wants to be Freddie Freeman, but um, – <laughs> But, yeah, I I, I just think that he's someone who can really hit and you can dream on someone who is, yeah, a 50, 55, 60 hit tool with 60 power, game power, you know, anchor in the lineup. And that's why, you know, he's kind of the number and the number one prospect for us or for a lot of people is considered the number one prospect, even though he might be a little farther away than some of the guys we're talking about.
3: Now, was there any doubt at Sox Prospects in terms of people uh, over there, when you guys do rankings, putting him number
0: one in the system, or is he pretty much head and shoulders above everybody else? Um, I don't think he's head and shoulders above. I think him and Downs are pretty close, but that's more of a reflection of Downs is very good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, there was no, we, that him being number one was a consensus decision.
3: Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I figured as much. Uh, one of the worries that some people have about Casas is, you know, the long levers. He is 6'5", 250. Um, are there any gaps in his swing because of those long levers? Or is his approach able to cover up for some of those gaps?
0: No, he does a really good job of, of um, covering up for those. You know, obviously, you'll he, have some issues with um, some velocity But I'm not really worried about that. He's always been playing, like, above for his age, and he's figured it out. And um, so, no, I mean, you know, he's obviously going to have swing and miss because when you're a power hitter who's 6'5", that's what happens. But it's not close to what you would expect for someone as big as him with as much power as he has. All
3: right. That is good to hear. I I like it. Um, Casas is actually the prospect – that I am most excited about. Um, about uh, I would say he's the most excited I've been for a Red Sox prospect since Xander Bogarts. So I'm wondering from you, and one of my favorite things about listening to the Sox Prospects podcast is just how far back you and Chris go with, you know, the guys you remember through the system. So I want to ask you, who in the Red Sox system in the past does he remind you of?
0: Uh, nobody because there really hasn't been anyone like him. <laughs> I mean, no, seriously, like, yeah. they, they just have not, they don't really draft, like, first call high school first basemen that are 6'5". That's just yeah. not, that's not a profile of guys they've really targeted. I mean, you know, you can go back to guys like Lars Anderson, but Lars Anderson was a hit over power guy at first base. Um, and, yeah, I, I don't really, I mean, I'm trying to think back, like, go even further back than that, but since I've started doing it, I mean, the closest like tool comparison to him just with hit and power is someone like Moncada, but he Moncada had like the speed and everything. So it's not really a, you know, a comparable situation there. There's really not been a corner guy like him since I've been covering the system. The, the one guy that came to mind for me was Anthony Rizzo. Is there any similarity there? Rizzo's pretty good. He was a uh, Rizzo was a little before my time. So that's why uh, I did not, uh, did not, Go back to him because he was traded like right um, when I started kind of getting involved with things, um, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely some similarities with. I think they're both really they have good approaches at the plate. I I think that um, actually Casas has more power than Rizzo. Weirdly, like I believe it. Rizzo's like a guy, you know, it's like 55. He's like a you know 30 home run guy, which is great. But I think Casas has more power potential. Um, And yeah, I I can see a little bit of that, though. But I I think that as I mean, it's cliche, but the the one that everyone says is the Freeman comparison. I I think there is something to that there. They have a lot of similarities in the way they approach the game and kind of their size, their swing, the makeup, everything. So, yeah.
3: Okay, I'm going to hit you with another question here that's quite juicy. He is the best hitter in the Red Sox system since who?
0: Um. Well, I got to see who came first. I mean, it's either Betts or Bogarts. Well, it's probably Devers, actually. It's Devers. Devers is... Yeah, it's Devers. I was going to the most recent one, it would be Devers. Like, I, I think we forget how good of a prospect, like, Devers, Betts, Bogarts, those guys all were. You right. know, coming up, Devers is... I mean, and I still think it's there. He's like it was like a sixty hit. I mean, Ben and you could also throw in there. I don't know which one of them graduated first. I can't remember. I think Ben. But um, in terms of pure hit tool, when they were prospects, is one of those two, Ben and or Devers. Yeah, and the, the
3: the power just that's the thing that just gets the juices flowing. There well, that, is the yeah, because
0: like because like De- Devers is like the closest like I would say offensive comparison, but Devers is has some is not as patient. I think as Costas is. I don't know exactly what Dever's walk rate are like this year or what it's been but yeah it's like devers, cost is, it's good this year it's like 11 percent this year if what he holds this year is true then it's devers is actually the most like recent hitter comparison but what he's done the previous year is like that five to six percent walk rate Devers that is is not Cas will be higher than that.
3: All right. So um, for people dreaming on Casas, like me, uh, who tries to own him in every fantasy league I play in, as you know, Ian, because we <laughs> play in some together. Um, you know, what does, uh, I, I guess my, I would ask, what, um, what is his path to Boston in 2021? Is there one, is there a way that he hits so insanely well at Portland and forces his way up to Worcester and just handles the level uh, and the Red Sox feel like they need to add him to this team at some point down the stretch?
0: I mean, I, I think there's uh, – there, I, mean, I would never rule it out. I don't think it's very likely. um, But, you know, he's someone that I believe he, he has to be – I don't think he – he doesn't have to be added to the Rule 5 um, or to the 40-man roster this offseason. I think that's kind of the biggest issue for him with that route. Mm -hmm. is that if they're doing it, they have to be confident that he's ready because they'd be burning an option next year and basically taking up a 40-man spot the entire offseason. So, you know, whereas they have some guys they need to add, like Duran, Downs are both guys that are not on the 40-man right now but are going to be added at some point this year or have to be after the year. And so it kind of just starts getting tight with those 40-man spots. And that's, I think, why... It would require a lot for him to get a look this year. I think next year is much more realistic.
3: Yeah, we've seen a lot of the Red Sox best prospects debut at age 21 or younger, with you know Devers and Bogarts and, mm-hmm. and some of those other guys. So that's why I'm I'm holding out a little bit of hope. Uh, to see Costas this year,
0: but I think you're right that it's it's less likely, especially considering the depth that has been built up. Well, that's the thing is, you know, where is he going to play? You're going to have J.D. DHing. It would require Bobby Dahlbeck to have been terrible, Michael Shavis to have been terrible, probably Marwood Gonzalez. Like, they have a lot of guys who can play first base who are ahead of him, so yeah. I just don't see it. I think it's a realistic option for this year.
3: All right. Um, let's move off of the hitting side of things. We want to talk about two arms here, Tanner Houck and Connor Seabold, who seem like they are the sixth and seventh man in the rotation um, if, you know, the Red Sox need to do that. So let's talk about Houck first. He's 24 years old, right-handed pitcher, uh, has done well in his limited time in the major leagues as a starter. Um, What have you seen from him in that limited time that maybe has changed his projection from being a more likely reliever to being
0: a more likely starter, what changes have been made there? So any? I still have not really changed my projection. I still think he's like a swingman type who could also be like a late inning reliever, but he probably could add more value in like a three to four inning role. And I, I just think it comes down to a few things for me. Is that um, first thing is that the third pitch he just doesn't have any interest in really throwing it or can't doesn't throw it in games. Doesn't have a lot of confidence, so he's kind of he's still a two pitch guy. And the other thing is, I think his control is definitely improved, but I don't think his command is very good still. You know, he doesn't throw a lot of quality strikes, and I think that while he's around the zone, um, I think there are some issues with locating, and the result is that you know when hitters get to see him a few times through, then they get good looks at him. And you know, I've seen, I think we've seen it this year. No, you know, he's he's. Not gone very deep in either of his two starts. Um, I think the exit velos off him are pretty high this year and while the walk rate is down considerably, you know he's just given up a lot of loud contact and, and I think the other th- just talking to scouts who've seen the Red Sox this year, spring training, etc I still have not talked to anyone who confidently projects him in the rotation. and I know a lot of Red Sox fans want him to be in the rotation, but I do think it's interesting that you know, there's just not a lot of at least the people i'm talking to who think he can be a starter and hold up long term in that role and that doesn't mean he's not going to be a valuable contributor they all think he could be a valuable part of the future of the red Sox, but just not in a every five day starter role um and and you know what i've seen from him hasn't really changed my projection i still think it's more like a swingman type who could be a really key piece but probably can't be going you know five innings every fifth day
3: so he never really did get a feel for the changeup. Um, there was a lot of talk about throwing this splitter. What's going on with that? I mean, why has he seemingly been reticent to throw this splitter? Because when he comes up to the majors, we don't really see that pitch.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I, I think that it, I, I think it's hard to tell a guy you have to throw a pitch when he's had success with only two pitches. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I just think that he's had success with only two pitches, so... Why would he, you know, why would he go throw something he doesn't have confidence in at the major league level? But I, I think, you know, when you, when I've seen him throw at the minor league games and in like the scrimmages and everything, it just hasn't really he hasn't shown any feel for it. He hasn't developed it. It's a tough arm angle for a splitter. Um, you know, you don't see a lot of good splits or change ups from that side arm slot or low three quarter slot. And I think that, yeah, it's just, you know, when you're having success with your fastball and your slider, it's or your sinker and your slider, it's not, you know, you don't really want to throw that third pitch.
3: Is there any other pitch type that you think might work naturally with his arm slot? And I know that the Red Sox, you know, tried to change him to more of an over the top arm slot and it just kind of screwed him up and it didn't really work for him. You know, for for a guy who has such a feel for a slider, you would think maybe he could also throw a different type of breaking pitch, maybe a curveball as well, to give him another compliment to his repertoire. Because some guys it just seems like don't have a feel for the changeup, but can throw the bendy stuff a little bit. I'm kind of at a loss for what other pitches he could try at this point that might click with the way that he throws.
0: Yeah, I mean they um they tr- obviously tried though a curveball with him before and it didn't really pay off so or it didn't really work so um I don't know yeah I I it's it's a tough one I I maybe he starts trying to throw a cutter like you know Adam Ottavino has mm-hmm. one and he kind of throws that weird slot but I, I yeah I don't know what they they're gonna try with him and, and I think you know the argument you could be made that he's throwing a four seam and a two seam fastball and their are two distinct pitches. But um, I just think that you need something to get lefties out. And that's the biggest thing holding him back right now. I was
3: actually just about to make that argument. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I have noticed when watching him, though, and when he's been effective is he seems to have two distinct fastballs. And he also seems to have a harder slider and a more uh, traditional slider.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, and, and that's that's another way to do it. You know, if you can get really good at taking something off and kind of, like, changing up the shape a little bit of a pitch, then that's another way to go about it. But I, I, I do think, though, that just it, the hard thing is that even if you're doing that, it's still going to have similar shape or similar, like, angle. And the biggest thing is he needs something going away from lefties, not towards them. Okay.
3: So, obviously, lefties are going to continue to be a problem unless he has that um... – You know, if you listen to WEI or anything like that, you'd think that we have the next Jacob DeGrom on our hands Mm -hmm. with the way that callers uh, have been been treating him. Um, Who is the first man up, though, if the Red Sox do need a starter between he and Connor Seabold at this point?
0: Oh, it's definitely him. I mean, there's a reason that he's been up, you know, with those doubleheaders and everything. But, um, yeah, um, I I, I think it's without it, it's definitely him and and i wouldn't be surprised if you know we see him pretty soon and with you know maybe garrett richards going on the dl for a groin strain quote unquote or something to kind of work on his mechanics um I, i think he will probably be up at some point pretty soon again
3: yeah it's interesting i i hope that garrett richards is able to figure out his mechanical issues because he does definitely look out of sync and kind of has since the start of the season um, but let's talk about Connor Seabold here, 25-year-old right-handed pitcher. Um, I still cannot believe that they got Connor Seabold for uh, what they gave up to the Phillies, uh, who had basically nothing to show for that deal. That's one of my favorites. Um, but he seems to have advanced stuff, a starter's repertoire. Um, why are you guys over at Sox Prospects a little bit more confident in him as
0: a long-term starter than a guy like How? Um, well, I think the first thing with Seabold is it's, it's, uh, his command and control is better than Houck's. Um, you know, he's someone who, he does not walk a lot of guys. I mean, even Hawk, I think it was yesterday or two days ago, he threw at the ATS and he walked five guys in six innings. And while, you know, he hasn't done that at the major league level last year's walk rate or this year, excuse me, his walk rate last year was close to five per nine. You know, it's just an area that Seabold excels in is throwing strikes and he throws quality strikes and the biggest thing too is that he has he has uh three pitches now actually, which has turned into four pitches. Um, you know, Seabolt's got a f he's got a fastball that is, you know, 91, 92, 93. He'll it'll sit, you know, 92, 93 usually, but he can bump it up to 95, 96 when he needs to. Then he's got that plus changeup um, in the low 80s, which I think is you know similar. Howk has the plus sliders, so they both got a plus secondary, but Bigger separator for me is that I think how seabold also has an average slider and he has plenty of confidence in it and he's willingness to throw it. Mm-hmm. And he's added now a curveball too,
3: hmm. which
0: he's using as kind of like a show me, steal a strike, different angle, just give the hitters a different look pitch. And you know, we're talking about a guy who you know, you made three average ish at least offerings and then a, his breaking ball. I put a 40 on it when I saw him because I actually saw him throw six innings last week, whenever those games were. Um, but it's a usable pitch when sequenced correctly, and so having those four pitches, you know, is that's a big difference than having you know two with an asterisk next to it.
3: Now, reading you guys' reports on his changeup got me pretty excited. Why should we be so pumped up about that pitch?
0: I, it's a really good changeup. You know, kind of like what we've seen with Whitlock. It's got that late, you know, dive, fall off the table movement. You can really pull the string on it. Um, he's actually not had feel for it the last couple of weeks, which is interesting. Um, he has, he said it in a, one of the post games after he threw, cause I, when I saw him, he only threw, I want to say like four or five, the entire thing. And I, I assumed it was because he was working on his breaking ball, but it turned out afterwards he said that it was actually just, he hasn't as great feel for it. But mm. he, even in his last out at inning of when I saw him, he threw a couple plus ones where he finally kind of started to feel it a little bit, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, it's got good separation from his fastball, 10 plus miles an hour. And then it's got that late, you know, deceptive dive that really fools hitters because he throws it from the exact same, you know, same release, same slot, um, same, you know, arm action and speed. Mm -hmm. But it's 10, 12 miles an hour slower. And so, yeah, it plays. Yeah, that's a
3: that's a deadly pitch when you have that identical arm speed to the fastball. That's that's nice. Well, and that's
0: the thing. You know, you look at how how someone who even when he's throwing his splitter well, it's the the, the separation is only like five, six, seven miles an hour. You know, that that's right. a big difference when you have that versus when you're having you know ten to twelve miles an hour.
3: So you know, looking forward to say 2022 when they have the option to either bring back a Garrett Richards or a Martin Perez again for another year or, or roll with somebody like a Connor Seabold in the fourth or fifth starters role. Is that something that you see him being ready to do in 2022?
0: Um, yeah, I do. I, I think that he's someone that we do see at some point this season. Um, especially since he's on the 40 man and pretty clearly to me, seems like he's the seventh starter. And I think that that would be ideal for them would be, you know, not maybe not necessarily having him, have, having the job out of camp, but being kind of like in the HALC role as the sixth guy ready to go mm-hmm. at a moment's notice, ready to take a job, and then, you know, starting, you know, maybe mid-next season and four he's in your rotation for the foreseeable future.
3: It's definitely a good outcome for a guy who you traded two relievers for. That's pretty nice.
0: Well, I mean, you they also got, like, their number four starter this year, so, yeah, <laughs> with Nick yeah. Pavetta, so that's a kind of a good outcome, too. Yeah, it's, it's nice. It's really nice. It's
3: nice to be on the opposite side of the getting the extra pieces deals for, uh, for once. That's pretty good. Um, all right. So let's close out the book on Seabold. Is there any way that his profile can take even a further step forward and he can become more of like a mid to upper rotation guy or is, is really the four or five starter kind of the profile that we're looking at here? Or is there
0: another gear for him? Um, sorry. Can you repeat the question?
3: Yeah. I'm just wondering, you know, the changeup's good with him. The command's good with Seabold. Is there an, is there anything that he could do to kind of reach another gear where his projection goes up maybe even another grade or so?
0: Um, yeah, I, I think that he is number one is just stay healthy. You know, he's had some injury issues and not thrown. Um, I think it was in 2019. He only threw like 40, 60 innings or something. Mm Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's obviously just, just showing he can stay healthy um, and that kind of oblique injury is a thing of the past. And then I think just, yeah, just continued refinement of his secondaries, so, you know, if he can get that slider up to even a 50, a consistent 50, maybe even a 55, you know, maybe get the curveball up a little more or, in, in, you know, have the velocity continue to tick up like it has. That's definitely something that um, could be interesting and kind of push that projection up.
3: Okay. Interesting. Interesting. All right, so let's look at the Red Sox bullpen. Um, It's been, uh, you know, by Fangraphs War, it's been the second most valuable bullpen in all of baseball uh, behind only the vaunted Yankees bullpen. So that's a pretty good outcome so far. Um, You know, a couple of guys being stolen from the Yankees, uh, one via trade and another one via via the Rule 5 draft. So that feels pretty good as well. Um, But looking at the bullpen, the only two guys who are on the 40-man who are not in the Major League bullpen right now are Edward Bizzardo and Colton Brewer. Um, we have a bunch of relievers kind of struggling in and out uh, in in the Red Sox bullpen. Austin Bryce has not looked great. Josh Taylor has certainly not looked like himself. Phillips Valdez has seen his command come and go. Um, Ryan Brazier is reportedly rehabbing right now and could be potentially on his way back right there. I guess I have some, some questions about... Um, how you see um the relievers shaking out uh you know the the high a re- or uh, high high miners relievers shaking out so we have guys like john Schreiber uh you know Kevin McCarthy rondone feltman blair gonçalves are any of these guys sort of more interesting to you than you know, any of the back end guys in the Red Sox uh, bullpen right now? And, you know, is, is the depth better than it was last year when we were pulling out some pretty, pretty rough options out of the bullpen?
0: <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that right now, there are obviously some guys are struggling, Josh Taylor, especially his stuff is just not back. Um, I don't know if it's still COVID effects or what, because obviously he had it last year. But His stuff is just not the same, and it wasn't good at spring training either. Um, Austin Bryce, similar stuff is not as good as it was in past years. I mean, and, you know, some of the other guys are fine, but they're not standouts. Um, I think that Bizzardo is the key, is the biggest tool they have or the biggest asset they have. um, And I would not be surprised at all if he's up at some point in the next couple of weeks and maybe for good. Um, I, I just think that, you know, he can throw strikes, he's got three pitches or you know, two and a half pitches. And one of them is a true, you know, hammer secondary pitch that can get MLB guys out. So I, I think that he's the key one, but I think kind of not on the 40 man. I think the the guy that I would look at is Kevin McCarthy. Um, he's someone who's kind of a different look to what they have. You know, he's more of a, a two seam sinker baller, you know, in the high eighties. Um, but he was really good in spring training. And I believe he has an opt out coming up at some point. So, if they want to keep him around, we could see um, him being kind of someone they make the move for. But I think that while they might not 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 necessarily have any like true like other you know standout guys, they have enough volume that they can kind of figure it out from there and kind of you know find some guys that it will um, that you know that just kind of churn and burn until you find a guy or two stick for those last couple of spots because. You know, getting Brazier back will obviously be a big help because he's someone they clearly counted on for late innings and he's not there. And that's kind of left this weird, you know, in-between rule where, you know, one night it's Matt Andrees, one night it's, you know, Sal Amora, another night it's Whitlock kind of pitching that seventh inning. And I think having him back would give them a lot more clarity with those late inning rules when, you know, you have Ottavino, Hernandez and Brazier for the seventh and the eighth innings, you know, and Whitlock on occasion. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I, I think that's kind of the group they're looking from.
3: Yeah, it seems like when Brazier comes back, it makes sense to option one of Phillips Valdez or Josh Taylor, and, and maybe you have Josh Taylor work on his stuff a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Edward Bizardo, I think could could come up for the other guy of those two that could be optioned. And then I think it gets gets a little bit interesting. I wouldn't feel totally bad about uh, DFAing Austin Bryce and putting Kevin McCarthy on this roster at this point either.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know if we're there yet. I, I think they want to give him a look. But, yeah, I mean, I, I do think the Bryce, Valdez, Taylor spots are definitely going to be up for grabs if things continue kind of the way they're going right now.
3: Yeah. All right. So um, the Andrew Benintendi trade that went down this offseason, um, there were a bunch of prospects to be named later from the Mets. Um, with, you know, the, the Worcester uh, AAA team playing the Mets so frequently – When are the Red Sox going to have an idea of who they are getting in that trade?
0: I don't think we'll hear anything till probably end of May, June, July, something like that. Um, I I believe they're waiting for the regular minor league season to start and they want to scout them in games like that. Um, Like the, the Mets alternate site team also had, Literally, like two prospects on the entire roster. Okay. It was like I saw like Jordan Yamamoto, Erodis Fiscaino, Jared Eikoff, like Jerry Blevins. It was a bunch of like ex MLB guys mostly. So the only actual like legit prospect there was Khalil Lee, ironically, who was part of that trade. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so I think that uh, they're going to want to get some eyes on the actual minor league season. Um, and I personally would not be wanting to pick from that pool of players if that's um so i would assume i don't think anyone on the list is on the mets you know triple a team so i don't think we'll hear about anything anytime soon
3: okay well that is good to hear then because uh definitely not super interested in any of those uh, guys you just mentioned um what were your impressions of worcester though that's that's my hometown so uh i haven't been able to actually be inside the new ballpark yet um, you've been to, I think, all of the Red Sox affiliates. I mean, how does it stack up?
0: Uh, yeah, it's it's a very nice park. Um, it's obviously, you know, Pawtucket's P- a special place. Uh, I've had a lot of good memories there. But for scouting purposes and as a ballpark, it's not very nice. You know, it was old. It was outdated. The, ang- the sight lines were really bad. Um, and I think the fan experience kind of suffered because the sight lines were really bad. It was just a weird, weird place to watch a game. Um, Worcester's just, you know, a very modern really nice ballpark the um the seats are very comfortable there's a lot of good angles you know I was walking around the park kind of like getting a feel for it watching the game from a few different spots and it seemed like almost all the seats were really you got a good you got a good look at the action um there's none of this you know raised home plate issue that they had in Pawtucket which was my nightmare I hated it so much so that's real. that's probably the biggest, you know, improvement for me for scouting purposes is I'm actually at a good eye level or a sight line instead of being raised, trying, having no feel for how much a, you know, a breaking ball is breaking or kind of the movement on a changeup. up. Um, so for me, that's important, but I, I just liked, it was very convenient. You know, I was coming from Boston. It took me about 45 minutes to get to the park. It's pretty close to the highway, which is nice. Um and, yeah, I, I think that it's going to be a really cool fan experience. It's, it seems like it's in a, in a fun area. Um, they've done a really nice job. I think the attention to detail is really good. You know, they have some really nice touches. There's, like, you know, a little home plate promenade with the Red Sox World Series rings out there, replicas of them. But they're, like, full, si- they're like huge replicas. Then, you know, they've got the – I don't know what it's called. I, I was calling it, like, the Worcester Wall or something in right field, which is kind of green monster-ish. And there's going to be seats up there. There's – some cool, like, you know, uh, standing room areas around the park. Um, I, I think it's going to be a really fun place to watch a game and I'm looking forward to being able to get out there once fans are allowed back. Cause it was kind of weird being one of like six people in the park. So, uh, when there went, it'll be, I think, uh, something that Worcester is going to really enjoy. And I think that for the Red Sox, it, it, it was need, needed, you know, to get those updated facilities. It's got really, really nice bullpen set up, like MLB quality bullpen set up and size, which is huge. Um, which I think is really nice and, you know, good for development when you can have multiple pitchers thrown at once with coaches in there watching. Um, I guess the, you know, the training room, the hitting facilities, everything are really nice. Locker rooms are great. Um, I was up, you know, got to go around and see the club levels and everything. And that even looked really nice. And I, I think it's just going to be, it's, it's just a, it was, it was time to get a new park for the AAA because, as I said, you know, I have a lot of good memories in Pawtucket, but as a ballpark, it was not ideal.
3: Yeah, well, it seems like they pulled out all the stops, which is really nice to see. It's the most expensive minor league park that has ever been created. Oh, is that true? I did not know (laughs) that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's got a lot of really cool features, which I think that the fans are really going to enjoy. And I've heard, um, you know, they're going to have a lot of the the foods supposedly going to be really good. A lot of local coming from local people. You know, there's a lot of like flat screens around the promenade. So you can be watching. I'm assuming they'll have the Red Sox on there, things like that. The video board is spectacular. It's massive. So uh, I I think it'll it'll be a lot of fun. You ever had a Worcester uh, Coney Island hot dog? I have not, so uh, maybe I'll get, have to have one when I uh, go to a game at some point this year.
3: You got to check that out. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that, they're going to have them there at the park, so yeah. that should be great. Yeah, um, I, I, I actually awesome. drove
0: by that the Worcester Coney Island hot dog store. or Maybe there's multiple, but there was some hot dog store that had a huge line when yep. I was driving back, um, kind of <laughs> close to the park. So.
3: Yep, yeah, that's Coney Dog. Yep, that place has been in, in business for over 100 years. So it's a, wow. it's a okay. Worcester city. Uh, it
0: makes sense that even during a pandemic, you know, you, I think there were like 20 people in line <laughs> for it.
3: Yeah, you got to get your hot dog fix uh, no matter no matter what's going on out there. So it's nice to see Worcester has come a long way from the Worcester Tornadoes and the Worcester Bravehearts to something this cool for the city. So very, very excited for that. Definitely. All right, everybody, uh, as you uh, may have noticed there, uh, there was a little bit of an abrupt cutoff. Uh, Ian Kundal and I were disconnected by my faulty internet, uh, which dropped towards the end of that call. So unfortunately, uh, we weren't able to have a proper goodbye for our fantastic guest, Ian Cundle. Um You can find his work uh, on Twitter at, at Ian Kundal. Um, you can also check out his work at SoxProspects.com, so definitely do that, and also tune into the Sox Prospects podcast. Huge thanks to Ian for coming on the show and giving us uh, fantastic information as usual. I did want to just come on and uh, record this little close here and, and get to some of these listener questions, because they were good ones, and I want to make sure that I do get to them. So let's start off with the first one here from Richard Banks. Uh, He says, can you do a bit on who the Sox may bring in at the trade deadline if they are competing and uh, who they might get rid of if not with potential returns? Uh, I know it's early, but based on uh, who our teams are looking like they're competing. uh, Yeah, we will definitely do something like that, Richard, Uh, as we get a little bit further along in the year. It is a little too early to kind of judge that after just uh, April baseball, but we will definitely be doing a lot on the trade deadline. And I assume at this point the Sox would be buyers. Um, Sox South has our next question. He says, if you had to guess, which Red Sox player would you say has the lowest personal credit score? Well, you know what? Uh, I can't speculate on who would have the lowest, but I can say that I think that... um, Alex Verdugo probably has the most extremes. He probably has either one of the best credit scores on the team or one of the worst credit scores on the team. I I can't see uh, Alex Verdugo being a man of moderation uh, one way or the other. Jeff Wax has our next question. He says, how elated are you that on April 26th we have Franchi Cordero? Uh, you know what? I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to give him a little bit of runway. I'm not totally uh, upset at Franchi at this point. Um, I'd like him to be better. I think he will be better. Um, but you know what? I'm not panicking too, too much. Uh, Sox Junkie uh, has our next question. He says, why didn't the Red Sox sign Rondon or Taiwan Walker instead of Richards? Hoping Richards turns it around, but any big leaguer who says he can't control his release point scares the crap out of me the rest of the season. Um, you know what I, I don't think it is obvious that Rondon or Taiwan Walker was going to be better uh, than Richards um, Taiwan doesn't have a track record uh, Ron has battled myriad injuries the last couple of years. Richards actually had the safest track record in profile out of those guys and his struggles this year have been a little bit of an anomaly so I think that uh, the process was probably pretty good with signing him. Um, But unfortunately, you know, things aren't working out so far. But I I think that, you know, he will figure it out. Uh, Next question comes from Mike Rosillo, and he says, uh, Question for the pod. With franchise struggles, what are the chances Jaron Duran gets the call to play left field? I know he's amazing offensively during winter ball, brings good speed, and could add some uh, versatility defensively. Uh, While he's currently learning center field in the minors, he does bring experience playing second base in college at Long Beach State. Thanks. Uh, great question, Mike. Uh, we hopefully addressed that for you on the pod earlier with Ian saying that uh, he thinks by June 1, you know, Franchi continues to struggle, that that could be the date uh, that the Red Sox have to do something and pull the trigger and bring up Jaron Durant. So we'll we'll see how he does as the minor league season uh, gets underway, and he should have about a month under his belt at that point. And so if he is continuing to, to handle the minor leagues, then I think that, uh, you know, that's very distinct possibility all right that is our episode today we do appreciate you joining us and uh, we went a little bit longer than usual but we had a fantastic guest so that was an absolutely great show Um, thank you for making us part of your routine Uh, rate review subscribe check us out follow us on twitter you can find me at devjake you can find the over the monster account at over the monster you can find my colleague Keaton at Spoken Keats and uh, you can find Ian one more time at Ian Kundle Thanks a lot for joining us. We'll be with you next time.